All right, we are in Psalm 24 this morning. That's on page 458 if you use the Pew Bible in front of you. This is the second year that we're proceeding through the Psalms according to the New Year number. All right, this is something I learned from my dad growing up, and I'm continuing it. All right, give credit, give credit where credit is due. So I'm preaching from Psalm 24 because tomorrow's the beginning of 2024. Last year, David Daniels preached from Psalm 23, and I would commend that sermon to you highly uh, if you want to go back online and listen to the first sermon from 2023. Or maybe it was the last of 2022. I don't know. You can find it. (laughs) Well, 25 years ago today, I was in St. Petersburg, Florida with my parents, my siblings, and the wider Shed clan anticipating the New Year's Eve wedding of my cousin Erin to her now husband of 25 years, John. Okay, St. Petersburg, Florida, cool. What was especially uh, memorable for me was not that night, though it was a really nice wedding. It was the two weeks leading up to that night. See, I had spent that fall in Rubio, Venezuela, teaching at a missionary kids' school called Christensen Academy, and a couple of my students invited me and my roommate to travel with them to the villages in the Venezuelan jungle where their parents were missionaries. So as soon as school got out, those two students and me and my buddy Jeff, we jumped on a Cessna with Missionary Aviation Fellowship, and we flew from San Cristobal to Puerto Ayacucho, which is kind of the gateway city into the jungle in southern Venezuela. We stayed a night there, and then we got on another Cessna and flew directly into a Yanomami village. We spent a few days there, lots of stories I could tell. I'm not going to tell them this morning. Then we got another plane after a few days, and we flew to a second village that was further upriver. And in that village, we celebrated Christmas with that family and their two-toed sloth. All right? It was lots of fun. Under the stars, it was a beautiful, beautiful Christmas. After we were in that second village for a few days, we we returned to Puerto Ayacucho, flew from there to Caracas, and from Caracas to Miami. In Caracas, Jeff continued to Chicago. He's originally from Palatine. I caught an overnight greyhound. Yeah, those are fun. Across central Florida through the Everglades to arrive in St. Petersburg the morning of New Year's Eve. The wedding was that night. And then I think it was the next day or maybe January 2nd, all of our family got into the Aerostar minivan and drove north to come back to Chicago. Well, early January of 1999, there was a blizzard that moved across the Midwest, and we got stuck in Indianapolis overnight because the roads were so bad, and eventually we made it back to Chicago. So, there was a lot of traveling, a lot of different weather from the heat and the isolation of the jungle to being back in the city, and there were like 20 inches of snow on the ground. Very memorable two weeks in all of that travel. 
I got to experience the glory of creation as I traveled, but ultimately I was looking forward to arriving, arriving in St. Petersburg and then arriving back in Chicago for a few days before going back to Venezuela. What does this have to do with Psalm 24? Well, hopefully it engages your mind and your heart a little bit. Your desire for seeing the glory of God in creation. Today's psalm is a psalm about travel. And it's also about the arrival of glory. Specifically, the arrival of the king of glory. By the way, I was not the king of glory in that story. I was just traveling and arriving. Here's a question to start off with, though. If this psalm is about the arrival of the king of glory, what is glory? It's a word that we use a lot around here. What is glory? Well, first of all, understand this. It's first and foremost a divine quality. Ultimately, only God has glory. You might have heard the word sometimes vainglory. That's when someone is seeking glory for themselves, but ultimately it's an effort of futility. It's vain. Glory in the Old Testament stems from the Hebrew word kabod, which means heavy or weighty. God's glory in the Old Testament is visible. It's his visible and active presence, which fills all of creation is seen by the nations and causes his people to worship him. You could go to Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah beholds the glory of the Lord and he falls on his face. You could go to Genesis where Moses asks, I'm sorry, Exodus where Moses asks, can I see your glory, O Lord? The Greek word for glory is doxa, which is what we find in the New Testament. It's also where we get the word doxology, which means to worship, to honor, to esteem, to praise. So get this. God's people give glory to God. That's a verbal thing, like a, it's an action. We give glory to God because God is glorious. To give him glory is our worshipful response to his glory. The weight of his glory impacts his people. It makes all the difference in our lives and informing us into people that worship so here in this Psalm of David, Psalm 24, David is a glorious king in his own right, being the greatest king of Israel. Maybe he sang this song with the throngs of people in 2 Samuel 6, when, dancing, they brought the ark into the city of David. The ark of the covenant, which was the locus the location of the glory of God among the people of Israel. They brought the ark into Jerusalem and perhaps they sang this song. 
But as we'll see in a bit, this song is also talking about the glory of God in his strength, specifically being mighty in battle. So this might have been sung by David and the army of Israel when they were returning from victorious battles. See, the Lord went with them and fought for them in those battles. So their return to Jerusalem was also the Lord arriving back to his home, in a sense, to the Ark of the Covenant. Psalm 24 was penned by a king about a king. It's a song of divine worship, an anthem of arrival. For the king of glory must come in. And he is blessed. He blesses his people with his glorious presence. Lord, I ask that in an astounding way, we acknowledge your glorious presence with us here today. Even as we talk about your arrival, Lord, we know because you've told us that you are in the midst of your people. And so we thank you, God, that you are here this morning. Would you take your word and form us, fashion us more into the likeness of Christ this morning, we ask. Amen. Before I read Psalm 24, there are three questions that I'll seek to answer this morning. Who is the king? Jesus. We're getting to that, Daniel. <laughs> who are the king's people? And who is this king of glory? Who is the king? Who are the king's people? And who is this king of glory? Let's look at Psalm 24. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. So the first question, who is the king? The king is the sovereign creator, according to verses 1 and 2. Note here that, as opposed to the second and third sections, there are no questions in the text here. What the psalmist is saying here is that this is absolutely true. It's the starting place of understanding reality. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world 
and all those who dwell therein. His point is, the entire earth belongs to God. Belongs to God, not he started it and then stepped away from it and just kind of let it run its course. The earth belongs to God. As well as all of humanity, those who he breathed life into. Now this is interesting, in verse 1 here, the earth is the Lord's. This is the covenant name for God. Yahweh. In Genesis 1, the creator is called God. But in Genesis 2, the creator is called the Lord God. And again, this Lord would have been specifically the one who made a covenant with Abraham and by extension, Israel. We have to note here this divine exclusivity. The God of Israel, the true God, Yahweh, alone is the one who created, who rules, and to whom everything belongs. There are no other gods in this creation, ruling, equation. Nothing belongs to any other God in that sense. All is his full stop. In verse 2, where David says, For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, he's echoing creation language here, where as the Spirit hovered over the waters and then creation came forth, the seas were understood by Israel as the places of chaos. But God is the one who separated the water so that the earth rose up. He formed the earth. He established the ground. He brought order from chaos. Stability from instability. Creation belongs to him. And it is also extremely precisely ordered. Who dwells in this creation? All of us. All of humanity. Created originally to reflect the glory of God. We dwell here. The snow fell on the earth this morning. That earth was created. That earth continues to belong to him. The snow that fell belongs to him. He is the sovereign creator, this king. To which we move to the second question. Who are the king's people? Well, there are two questions of access to the king that are presented in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The question is meant here to say, this isn't just all access. 
Who are those who are dwelling on the earth who actually can ascend to the home of Yahweh? Well, he gives the answer actually pretty clearly. Verse 4, he who has clean hands, this person has sinless deeds on the outside. He who has a pure heart, sinless motives on the inside. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. This person rejects other gods and lifts up his soul to the God who is true. And he does not swear deceitfully. The words that come out of his mouth speak truth, not lies. Now here's the thing. Of all mankind, only Adam and Eve at this point met these standards before the fall. And yet they failed at the fall. They were no longer of clean hands, pure hearts. They had lifted themselves up and they had said what was false. Certainly David could not make this claim. We know of the litany of sins that he himself committed that are in the word of God themselves. Yet if these are the standards, then the answer to the question is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in his holy place, is no one. We might all be earth dwellers, but none of us can be God visitors. As Timothy says, as, as Paul says to Timothy in his second letter, he alone dwells in unapproachable light. No one can or will see him. That's because God is utterly holy, utterly different than us, utterly pure. There is no access to anyone who is not clean, pure, Yet, here's the thing. David doesn't stop here. David continues into verse 5. He says, he will receive. This is a promise. This is an assurance. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. If this was an inaccessible reality that we can't actually visit God, we can't actually dwell with him, then why would David continue on to make a promise that it seems like cannot be fulfilled? Somehow, there is the blessing of access to the King of Glory, their Lord. Well, I want you to think through this a little bit. It's access through repentance. See, these people who had experienced the glory of the Creator in Israel as a whole and perhaps had even been battling Philistines or Moabites and now were coming to approach Jerusalem, 
they knew that they did not come as sinless people. But they would still approach knowing that repentance was a kindness from the Lord. That though they were not holy, and God is holy, they could still approach God, understanding His holiness and desiring holiness themselves. So there was this access through repentance. I realize I'm not of clean hands or of pure heart, but I know the one who can make my hands clean and my heart pure. So it's access through repentance and it's access through faith to actually be able to ascend to the place where God lives. These people were accessing this by faith because they believe that God blesses his people with the righteousness that they don't have. At this point in Israel's history, there was a sacrificial system where real animals were really killed and it would really give forgiveness of sin in God's economy of the Old Testament. In fact, in 2 Samuel 6, after the people bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and it says, set it up in the tent that David had set up for it, David then goes on to offer sacrifices, offerings, peace offerings there at the Ark. These people knew they weren't pure. David knew he was not pure, but he also knew who God was. And he knew that God in his pure, steadfast love was waiting for sinners to say, we're not pure, we're not clean, but you are the one who is. We will approach you with that repentant reality. And we will believe that your righteousness can become ours. Because then what does David call God at the end of verse 5? The God of his salvation. Salvation means someone else saves someone. David is saying, I, can't, I need to be saved first of all, and I can't save myself. Yet God is the God of salvation. So the, the answer to the question here, who are the king's people? Those who are blessed with access to the king. Given his righteousness. Who is the king? He's the sovereign creator of all. His people are those who are blessed with access to him. Because he gives them, them his righteousness. And the third question is this. Who is this king of glory? Verse 7. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The people have come from the wider experience of the created order, have come to approach Jerusalem. Jerusalem was up on the mount. Specifically, the city of David was on Mount Zion. So these people are looking up to the place where God dwelled, and they're saying, who can ascend? Who can climb up? And they continue to ascend. They continue to climb, and they get to the gates of the city. They arrive at the gates of the city, and they shout out, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. What is the response from the gatekeepers? From those who are on the walls? Those who are manning the gates? Who goes there? Who is this king of glory? To which they respond, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So again, we shout, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the picture here seems to be, and all of Jerusalem, with those who are coming, all together resound in chorus. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies, he is the king of glory. The people that were returning, whether it be with the ark or from battle, were rousing up the people who were not with them. Oh, creaky ancient doors. Oh, gates that maybe have not opened for a while. The Lord is with us. He has done all that he purposed to do. Let him in. He's coming home. It's an interesting thing to think that these singers or this army, they are at once in the presence of the Lord because they're saying, open up the gates that the king of glory may come in. Yet they are also wanting the Lord to be where he should be, at the Ark of the Covenant. They're exclaiming his glory and announcing his victorious return. To which we could reasonably say, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. I haven't been to Israel before or tried to climb to the Temple Mount. I haven't been part of the army of Israel. So I don't exactly know what this means. I would probably also ask the question, who is this king of glory? I have not experienced this. So in some ways, this is lost on me. Well, David spoke of more than he ultimately knew. Because the New Testament throws wide the gates of understanding. 
as to who is the king of glory. Jesus Christ was the one by whom and for whom all things were created. Jesus Christ is the one who alone is pure, who alone is clean, who alone has never lifted up his soul to an idol. To the one who has always spoken truth. Only Jesus. Jesus has arrived at the gates. He entered into the kingdom of the world that he had created in the flesh of a baby. That flesh grew in wisdom and stature until the time when his ministry broke forth in his early 30s and he lived a perfect life and then went to die and rose again so that we could be forgiven. So that his glory would have a weighty effect on us. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4-6. through 6. It's going to be on a slide. You don't have to turn there. But note what Paul says to the Corinthians. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Note little g, God. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the what? The glory of Christ. The gospel that God sent his son to live, die, rise again, and ascend for the sake of sinners like us who cannot ascend the hill on our own, this is good news for sinners who need to be forgiven. The gospel is a gospel, the glory of Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? Where? In whom? The face of Jesus Christ. Glory only belongs to the Lord. But by his mercy and grace, he sent the glorious Christ that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible thing that Paul uses this creation imagery as light shone into darkness as creation, at creation, so God shines light into the darkness of our hearts. Listen, when a Christian becomes a Christian, 
in the biblical sense, it's rebirth. It's light penetrating darkness and turning a formerly cave of destruction into a beautiful garden of light where God dwells. This is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that he would cause us to look upon Jesus and the light of his face would penetrate those dark caves and give us life. He is the king of glory. God creates new life in a new people. He saves the repentant and gives them his righteousness. But you might say, but I, I, I don't feel pure. I don't either. But Jesus says this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That is first, that promise is first made true in himself. So that all those who place their faith in him are then brought into that state of purity before the Lord so that we too may see God. Glory makes all the difference. And Christ is the presence and the power of God, the King of glory. So I would just ask a couple of questions. Number one, do you know this glorious Christ? Maybe today is the day when God in his grace will rouse your ancient gates, will throw open the doors of your heart and shine the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into you. Will you believe him today? Will you trust that his glory is weighty and life-transforming and eternal? It is not your feeling of purity, my feeling of purity, that makes us righteous before God, but it is Jesus' actual purity and our faith in his actual cleanliness. That is the good news. It's not based on our purity, but on It's a free gift purchased by the blood of Christ himself offered to all those who would say, yes, I need him. Are you desiring purity today? Then go to the pure one. Go to Jesus Christ. If I could suggest to my brothers and sisters who are here, would you consider using these three sections of Psalm 24 to consider the coming year? I pray for myself and for us as a church, corporately and individually, that the King of Glory 
would open up creaky gates. That yes, though the king of glory, by his grace, has come in to the hearts of all those who have been reborn. Don't you desire more of his glory? Don't you desire for the prayer of your heart to daily, hourly, minutely be, Lord, show me more of your glory. I need the rust to be knocked off of these hinges. I need my gatekeeper eyes to be reawoken for them to look more bright as they wait on the king of glory to come again, but also knowing that he's here right now. Lord, how would you righteously, purely cast my eyes upon your glory anew even this year? Not as resolutions, but as relationship with the king of glory who says, come on, I have more to show you. Let me ask you some practical things. Verses 1 and 2 talk about the earth and everything and everyone in it belonging to him. Is that how you understand your life? Is that how you understand your stuff? Is that how you understand the people around you? Listen, God's glory is spreading through every single square inch of his creation. There's no part of your job or your school or your family that is outside of his glory because he owns it all. Would you invite him to step into the gates of the parts of creation where you've kind of doubted that his glory would actually have a weighty impact there? Let the king of glory come in. Perhaps you're looking at verses 3 and 4 and you're saying, well, I know that my faith is in Christ, and he has ascended the hill for me, but in reality I know that my hands are not clean. I know that my motives are not pure. I know that idolatry tends to get a hold of me. Listen, in the Old Testament, so much of the time for the people of God, idolatry were acts of expediency and pragmatism. They didn't just walk around saying, where's a Baal that I can bow down to? They worshipped Baal because the men married Baal worshippers. Or they worshipped Baal because Baal was the god of rain, and they needed the rain to come down on their land so the crops would grow so their families wouldn't starve. Oftentimes, the most slippery and deceitful of idolatry is just the stuff that we just do because it's expedient. It's pragmatic. It just seems to make sense. We have certain needs or desires. And so we say, I, I, 
there, there's a way for me to meet that need. There's a way for me to satisfy that desire in some way. Is it of the Lord? I, I don't know. But it's available to me. Yeah, Baal was available to Israel too. So there's an interesting overlay here between all of creation belonging to the Lord. So there, it's not a sense where God is saying, step away from the created order. Instead, he's saying, all of the created order belongs to me. Therefore, bring all of the created order before me and let me show you how to walk in purity and in worship and in wisdom. From the little decisions to the big decisions, act like God is actually alive. Act like he actually cares. Act like he actually owns it all. And talk to him about everything that he owns. Don't walk into the new year just saying, well, I have my plans. And yeah, they're pragmatic. But they're right there for me. Oh, would you let the king of glory come in. And rework your plans. And set in your heart a desire to seek the kingdom and his righteousness first. And let the rest of those things follow. See, when Christ orders our chaos, that's where life truly is. So we say, Christ, order my chaos. I will seek you first. Then he begins to put the other things in order. Don't be expedient. Don't continue to do what is right in your own eyes. Instead, embrace the King of glory. Lastly, here, glory in the ever-present and ever-loving Christ in 2024. In the Word and His people. If you're like me, maybe you're thinking about, well, tomorrow's January 1st. How will I be in the Word over the next year? I'd encourage you to get a plan. Don't just kind of do it willy-nilly. Well, I'm going to get into the Bible every once in a while. Get a plan. In the Word is life. And if you're not engaging the Word, if we are not engaging the Word, other than being here on a Sunday morning, which is good, how will we engage the Word? In the bulletin this morning, uh, Lovey put a button in there to click on an article by Tim Challies where he talks about a plan that he's doing, and I'm going to say I'm doing too, where you read through the Bible in a year by reading five times per week. He calls this the familiar way of getting into the Word. You go through the entire Word in a year, you become familiar with it. You see the storyline of the gospel woven through the entirety of the scripture. But he also says there's an intimate way to get into the word, and that's an extremely valid and good way too. A few years ago, over the course of a year, I went through all of Paul's epistles, and the longer ones I just gave a month to. The shorter ones, I combined them. So like 
First and Second Thessalonians, Titus and Philemon, those two pairs each had their own month together. Then you just say, like, listen, March is my First Timothy month, or January is my Romans month, all right? That way you're growing intimate with the Lord in a specific place in Scripture. Both valid ways, but both beg the question, how are we engaging Christ through his word in the coming year? I would also say this. Life Together is starting up on Wednesday. I don't say this in a, in a oh, you should be there sort of way. I say this in a, would you be there sort of way. We're studying through the book of Romans, and it's been dynamic, both in the study and in the fellowship, the prayer that we've been having together, the conversations, the friendships that are developing there. Would you put it on your calendar to say, yeah, we're going to try it on, on January 10th, 10th 7, 7 o'clock. It's, it's an every one night, so, so every single person that's sitting in here this morning can come. I would encourage you to consider making that a part of your weekly schedule going into 2024. But I know also, speaking practically again, some of you just can't. You work too late on Wednesday, or you've got a class on Wednesday night, or something or other. I get that too. Know that we're thinking of you also. When gospel life starts up again, on January 21st and 28th, that will be the hour before the service. Especially if you can't come on Wednesday nights, would you come for that hour before church on Sundays? You're coming here anyway. And engage in a class or a group where you will grow in the word. You will grow in Christ. We will grow in Christ as we welcome him in together. May 2024 be a year where God himself rouses us, revives us, renews us. Because we're saying, Lord, oil up my hinges. Oil up our hinges that the King of glory may come in. Our Lord, we ask for this. We ask for this, knowing there is no more glorious place than to be in your presence, Lord Jesus. And that your presence is in your people. So, oh Lord, would you renew us. Help us to hear the call of discipleship, Jesus, that you call out and say, follow me. By your grace, would we follow you, travel with you, trust you, Lord. For the sake of your name, we ask. Amen.